Good uh, morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're watching this from. My name is Gordon Flake. I'm the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center, and I'm delighted to welcome you to a joint program of the Perth US Asia Center and our sister institution, uh, the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Uh, let me begin by acknowledging that we here at the University of Western Australia are situated on the traditional lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. Uh, this is a virtual event, but I understand that one of our colleagues, uh, John Lee, is, is in Sydney on the traditional lands of the, uh, the Eora people of the, the Gadigal Nation. Uh, and uh, Haley Channer, our Canberra-based senior policy fellow, uh, is in, uh, on the lands of the, the Ngunnawal people. Uh, we begin this event like we do all our events, virtual or real, by paying our respects to the elders uh, past, present, and emerging of these peoples and uh, pay our, our honor to them in our efforts to continue to deepen understanding, not just of the world we live in here, uh, but in the region at large. And so this, this conversation today as a joint USSC Perth US Asia Center program is focusing on Australia US collaboration for the economic security of the Indo-Pacific. And as many of you will know, and I think those of you who signed up have seen, uh, in March of this year, uh, the, the two study centers the Perth U.S. Asia Center and the United States Studies Center produced a joint report called The State of the United States and Evolving Alliance Agenda. You'll find a link to this if you haven't said it already. Uh, and what this was was just weeks after the inauguration of a Biden administration in Washington, D.C., a series of essays that, that gave recommendations as to how Australia might position itself uh, with the new administration in Washington, D.C., and what steps that we might take to better strengthen our relationship. So since we've got wonderful researchers from both centers, we thought it would be a useful opportunity to do a deeper dive to look at the economic architecture of the Indo-Pacific and particularly look at those areas where Australia and the United States should be working together more closely in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and in that regard, we're very fortunate to have as three panelists today, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. Uh, Jeff is the Director of Research here at the Perth US Asia Center. Um, you will know him from his extensive writings uh, on, on geoeconomics more broadly, on critical materials, on, on value supply chains. And for the last year, by dint of his, his sins as a trade specialist, he's been an omnipresent um, uh, speaker on, on the ongoing uh, trade disputes between Australia and our largest trade partner, China. Um, we're also delighted to be joined by Haley Channer. Haley is, as I mentioned, a Canberra-based senior policy fellow with the Perth US Asia Center the first one to escape the, our fold, our, our bubble within a bubble here in Western Australia. We're really happy to have her on the ground in, in, in Canberra. Haley wrote a chapter focused specifically on infrastructure, uh, looking at you know, the trilateral cooperation between Australia, Japan, and the United States, uh, and, and we'll be addressing that in her remarks. And then the final panelist, uh, we're really honored to have John Lee. John Lee is a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Studies Center. He also wears many other hats, uh, you will know him from his long stint in Canberra uh, as a senior advisor to many of our chief foreign policy architects and leaders. Uh, but he also has a hat as a senior policy, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., though I, I, I bet it's a little bit harder to get over there these days, John. So we're, we're glad we've got you trapped for, for a while here in Australia. Uh, what I propose to do is just go to our panelists in turn to ask them to give kind of a, a quick overview uh, of, of, of the issues that they've worked on. So Jeff worked on geoeconomics more broadly, Haley on, on infrastructure, John on critical materials, rare earths, and supply chains. 
and, and we'll kind of tie that in together in an initial conversation and then come back for a bit of a conversation. I've already got a number of questions that were submitted in advance of this, this online webinar. Uh, and I'd encourage those of you who are interested in, in things that our speakers say to use the chat function. I'll try to incorporate as many as those as I can in the short hour that we've got. But thank you for joining us. Thank you to our panelists. And, and uh, Jeff, we're going to kick over and start out with you. Excellent. Um, thanks very much, Gordon. And look, just thanks again to all the audience who've made time to speak with us today. Um, I wanted to start the session by opening presenting the issues that we're facing here in terms of uh, the turn towards geoeconomics in the Indo-Pacific in recent years. Um, unfortunately, geoeconomic competitions become a fact of life in the early 21st century. As international rivalries amongst the major powers have re-emerged, economic policies have become a core element in the toolkit of contemporary statecraft. Um, trade warfare, investment races, and even cyber war have all become commonplace and many governments are now deploying these geoeconomic weapons for strategic gain. Um, but a critical driver behind the rise of geoeconomic con competition is China's use of trade sanctions as a means of economic co coercion. Um, China first adopted this tactic in 2010 when it suspended rare earth exports to Japan for two months during a dispute over the Senkaku Islands. And since that time, another seven countries Norway, the Philippines, Mongolia, Taiwan, Korea, Canada, and Australia have been on the receiving end of Chinese trade coercion for a diverse set of supposed political infractions. Um, notably, this tactic's only applied to small and medium countries, most of which are US allies, who simply lack the size and scale to retaliate against Chinese trade sanctions in a manner in which a large economy like the US or EU could. Now, these, this Chinese pattern of trade coercion serves two purposes, domestic pressure and international deterrence. Against the specific target, it works by inflicting costs on domestic businesses in the hope they will pressure their governments to change foreign policy positions with respect to China. And to third parties around the world, it functions as a warning designed to deter criticism of Chinese foreign policy in the future. Now, as many of you will know, last year, Australia became the eighth country to suffer a campaign of Chinese trade coercion. Um, in May, massive, and I should stress legally spurious, anti-dumping duties were applied to Australian barley exports, pricing nearly a billion dollars of exports out of the Chinese market. Um, more tra trade bans were applied in the following months, and by November, China had imposed some kind of sanction on 13 different Australian exports. Those affected 13 industries exported 52 billion Australian dollars to China in 2019, which is a serious economic blow coming atop the dislocations of COVID. But Australia stands out for its defiance. The Australian government has thus far refused to offer any diplomatic mea culpa. Um, and in December referred Chinese tariffs on barley to the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism. Australia's WTO case on Bali will prove a landmark test of China's ability to use trade sanctions for coercion in the same way that the famous Rare Earths WTO case, led by the US, Japan and EU a decade ago, did. Importantly, the WTO case also multilateralizes the issue, allowing Australia to pool resources with like-minded countries and providing greater prospects for victory. 
So we would argue it's essential that Australia, the US and aligned partners coordinate their responses to Chinese trade coercion. This is a genuinely global and not Australia, only an Australian problem because China has done this before and will surely do it again against some kind of collective responses mounted. Medium-sized countries like Australia are equally unlikely to succeed in a trade war against a behemoth without some coalitional support. Um, so some practical steps we could immediately implement include US and Australian coordination on Australia's WTO barley dispute, um, where assistance from the US trade representative would greatly augment Australian litigation resources. Um, bilateral discussions to restore functions to the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism whose appellate body is presently in court due to US appointment vetoes, and also exploring options for developing collective defence mechanisms, particularly a mini-lateral instrument that could enable faster responses than the comparatively slow WTO dispute process. Now, it's important to note that those steps alone will not be sufficient to deter China from deploying trade coercion, but they are a practical first step that can see coordination efforts begin between Australia, the US and other partners. And of course, trade's but one element of the geoeconomics challenge we face today, um, with my fellow panellists, Taylor and John, about to talk about infrastructure and technology in supply chains now. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. As you were speaking, I think Haley was becoming more and more enlightened and eventually it was just too much knowledge she had to turn it off. So. <laughs> I had to turn the brightness down, Jeff. That's very good. We're going over to you next, Haley, if we could. Yeah, thank you very much. And can I just um, echo what Jeff said, which is thank you to everyone who's joining us because I know Zoom fatigue is a real thing. So I, I hope this um, discussion is really useful for people. Now, this whole discussion today is about how Australia can work better with the Biden administration to counter coercion in our region. And Jeff's already mentioned a key one, which is how we can cooperate to um, minimise some of the negative trade aspects, including in the World Trade Organization. The topic I wrote about in the State of the United States was infrastructure. And I don't think infrastructure comes as naturally obvious to people as a way that Australia and the US can work together to counter coercion. So I want to explain why I wrote on this topic. And um, I like things that start with I. So I've got three points today. It's going to be importance of infrastructure, infrastructure as influence, and industry as integral. So that's a lot of eyes. I think I've hit that eye brief. <laughs> so the first point about that is um, infrastructure as important. So if we look at our um, own region now, um, more than 400, people, mil 400 million people in Asia go without electricity, for instance. So when I say infrastructure, it can be a little intangible. And I really want to explain um, and situate people to understand what I mean when I say infrastructure. So the people in Asia or the Pacific that don't have electricity, for instance, um, what that means in practice is uh, they can't do what we're doing right now. They can't tune in um, using a computer and have a Zoom meeting. Um, let alone turn a light on in the middle of the night or have refrigerated food. So as our region grows in terms of its economic development and you have a lot more population, in order to maintain the quality of living for people and also reduce poverty, you have to also give them the basic infrastructure that they need just to be able to live a normal, productive life and to maintain that level of growth. So you can take, for example, um, 
Australia, the US, Japan and New Zealand recently have tried to um, uh, electrify Papua New Guinea. That is an extremely difficult challenge because Papua New Guinea is a developing country. It's extremely mountainous and remote and it's difficult to get electricity to a lot of um, people who are living in rural areas. So there's a lot of challenges associated with delivering key infrastructure to the region. And it's really important that we do that because if we want to have a stable region going forward, we really need countries to be able to have the bridges, roads, ports, um, and sort of electrification that they need to prosper. But the next point I want to make is infrastructure as influence. So many people will have heard of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And that initiative is very highly funded. Um, it spans all the way from Europe to the Pacific. And it includes everything that I just mentioned. And a lot of people can see China as um, a one-stop shop for their infrastructure needs because not only does China finance the infrastructure, it also builds the infrastructure and countries can find that there are a lot fewer strings attached to Chinese investment. Contrast that though with um, the Australian and US offering and you can see a real difference between China's Belt and Road and for instance the uh, trilateral infrastructure partnership which is Australia, US, Japan. So our value proposition on that has been that it's quality infrastructure that um, takes into consideration individual and unique circumstances for each country. And it also improves on environmental and sustainability. Uh, in contrast, China's Belt and Road Initiative has really come under fire for um, a lack of transparency, um, it being open to corruption, and also the projects not necessarily being fit for purpose or not being quality investments. So for instance, um, I know of a bridge in Kenya that collapsed during its construction in 2017. So we do see a really different um, offering between China on the one hand and Australia and the United States on the other. Um, and I think uh, what's important to note is since Australia and the US started looking at infrastructure a couple of years ago, there unfortunately hasn't been a lot of movement in terms of Australia, the US and Japan building infrastructure in the region. At the moment, there's only one project that's underway. It's a $20 million undersea fiber optic cable, which will connect Palau with Southeast Asia and then ultimately with mainland USA. And on the other hand, China has, you know, lots of projects already completed. Um, back when the Australia, US, Japan infrastructure initiative was announced, it even faced criticism back then. So one commentator said, the trilateral initiative runs the risk of looking more tokenistic and symbolic than a real geopolitical alternative to China's Belt and Road. And in order to avoid that kind of reality, um, I come to my, my last point, which is industry as integral. Because Australia and the United States can't afford to match the same level of funding as China's Belt and Road, and the fact that we're offering quality infrastructure sometimes doesn't cut the mustard for a lot of developing countries that are looking for no strings attached. We really need to be able to work with the private sector to be able to increase what we're able to provide and make more of a contribution to the region. And there is such a huge need for infrastructure. So we really do need to change the value proposition of the private sector so that they decide to come on board. So, um, when I spoke to industry, they had a lot of um, suggestions about what could be done to improve the situation. Um, one of the things that I heard from them was 
they often would tell me that um, when government expects to partner with industry to build infrastructure, businesses expect government to come to them, explain what the opportunity is, and also um, what the type of support is that's available. However, on the other side, government is thinking, we have this fantastic support available. This is a great commercial opportunity. Why isn't the private sector coming to us? So you have this situation where both government and businesses just aren't meeting in the middle. So one of the recommendations I had was um, quite easily really a symposium that would bring together both sides. So you could have an Indo-Pacific um, infrastructure symposium that would be held somewhere, say in Southeast Asia, and bring together officials and people from the business community so that they can really speak in a more candid way and explain face-to-face -face what it is that's stopping them um, from partnering. The other recommendation that I had, which I think was the more significant one, is to create, you know, if, if China's got um, a one-stop shop, Australia and the United States need something similar. So maybe not a one-stop shop, but a first-stop shop, which would be um, a program nestled within an existing multilateral development organisation that would help provide industry with all of the tools that it needs to be able to buy into infrastructure development. So they could be things like um, a project pipeline that was um, geared more towards industry's interests than it was necessarily to the greatest development need. So at the moment, for instance, you've got a lot of project pipelines and they understandably focus and prioritise the best, the most critical need for countries. But in order to get the private sector to buy in, you need a project pipeline that actually looks at where's the best commercial gain, where's the safest investment. And that way you can start to generate a bit more activity. And I think countries will even find that once you start to get one or two um, companies building things, even if it's the, not the most critical thing that need, that country needs, that will attract other investment. So that was just two recommendations from my paper. And um, I really look forward to hearing some questions and talking more, engaging with our audience a bit more dynamically in the Q&A session. Thank you, Haley. So John, over to you. Yours is a rather complex mist, a mix of supply chains and critical technologies, materials and like. Can you, can you, you give us the summation, please? Thanks, Gordon. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's really great to be uh, on here with Haley and Jeff. Uh, yes, it is a complex mix of things. Very difficult task for a simple mind like mine, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, look, in my view, the report came about, or one of the reasons the report came about was that we realised that while the Biden administration is a lot more conventional and not as divisive as a previous one, um, in many respects, broad policy decisions were going to remain the same. And uh, some of the challenges and opportunities uh, that existed under the Trump administration will survive under the Biden administration. Um, in terms of similarities, Biden and his key people have all identified competition and rivalry with China as the most urgent external policy priority. Uh, and they've also identified investing in what they call national resilience and strength as critical to domestic policy. Now, with the, as with the Trump administration, it was always about trying to ensure that all these American priorities is consistent or aligned with Australian priorities. I think this is very much what the publication was about. Now, Australia, as we know, is having its own internal policy discussion or domestic discussion about reorganising, securing or diversifying supply chains and markets, uh, particularly regarding certain technologies or critical and strategic sectors. 
And given the obvious uh, worsening economic tensions with China, there is also a maturing conversation about decreasing Australia's reliance on China in particular and making sure that the sources of our future prosperity and security are much more resilient. Now, in some instances, this will involve a sovereign capability uh, when it was previously left to external entities or private entities to offer those capabilities to Australia. Now, all of this, whatever happens, we know it will involve a greater role for government in economic, uh, commercial uh, and industrial affairs. There'll be implications for project financing, public-private partnerships, investment rules, safeguard standards, export licensing, and a plethora of other legal and regulatory frameworks. So regarding national resilience, I think there's an urgent need for Australia, and I know we've begun this conversation, but, but it's still pretty um, um, early. There's, there's an urgent need for Australia to, to genuinely identify strategic and critical sectors and products, because everyone in every sector will say that they are critical and strategic. We need working definitions of what these are. Uh, we need to properly assess Australia's vulnerability with respect to these critical or strategic sectors. Uh, and then we need to decide on strategies of, um, of either diversification or access to safe and secure supply chains um, or joint ventures with allies and partners and only in some circumstances self-sufficiency. Now, the United States has similar aims to uh, Australia uh, when it comes to building sovereign capability and national resilience. But the key difference with the United States uh, is that it is the world's largest economy. It has unrivaled innovative capacity, unrivaled financing access. It's got unmatched public and private resources. And that means that there is always an instinctive tendency for the United States to look mainly inward to advance its own economic interest capabilities uh, and resilience. Uh, we have to make sure that this doesn't happen uh, or it only happens rarely and with rare sectors. If, if it does happen, if the United States does turn inward in defining national resilience, this will obviously only help China advance its strategic, economic and political uh, uh, objectives uh, in our region. So finally, what can we do? Let me just uh, leave you with four quick suggestions, very broad suggestions. Uh, one, I think we can replicate the government-to-government -government process that led up to the 2020 OSMIN to jointly identify uh, genuinely strategic and critical sectors and materials. Um, there is also the uh, chance to build on that conversation through the quad mechanism, and I think that pathway is open. Uh, second, we can't do much about Europe, but we need to get the US to prioritise getting the EU on board. Um, we also need to, to get buy-in from South Korea and Israel on these issues, but I focus on the EU because uh, the EU plays a role, particularly, particularly in, in key uh, technological and critical sectors, uh, that if they're not on board, then we end up just sort of working against each other. A third, we need to adopt a systems-based approach um, based on creating secure and commercially viable uh, supply chains, and I know this can sound a little bit bonkish and a little bit technical and meaningless, but it's not really as complicated as it sounds. Uh, this systems-based approach is already apparent in the long-standing uh, military cooperation between Australia and the United States, uh, in which the capabilities and interoperability and geography of one country 
essentially enhances the capability and security of the other allied partner. And we have, and finally, we need to apply this mindset to thinking about reorganizing supply chains for critical and strategic sectors. So this would include uh, harmonizing relevant legal and regulatory trade and investment rules, uh, establishing joint platforms and rules for public-private partnerships. And Haley and spoke a bit about that. Um, and, and, and we need to bring in as many friendly, trusted economies uh, as we can into these ecosystems. Well, well, thank you, John. Uh, if if I've got nothing else from what has been a really interesting hour so far, I'm going to go home today and use a, a what is it a, a systems-based approach to try to get my kids to empty the dishwasher in time. We'll see if it works or not. But it sounds like sounds like a great approach. Hey, look, um, the three different but deeply interrelated uh, relationships. I, I want to take a moment to turn the conversation to the United States because again, these were these were tabled in Canberra. They were early views of what Australia might do. Uh, and in a very similar time frame, uh, the Biden administration came out with some early moves on their own. And one of them was a, a hundred day review of their own supply chains. Um, and again, I, I think this really most directly impacts on what you were talking about, John. Could you just give us an update on that hundred day review, what the implications are, what the likely outcomes are? And then Jeff or Hayden, I'll ask you to chime in on that as well. When I glance at the review, the terms of reference and, and some of the um, offerings that have come out of it, the thing that strikes me the most is the key word is resilience. You know, it's all about improving or enhancing, strengthening American economic national resilience. But resilience can mean a lot of things. And I, I think this is where... Um, uh, well, this is key, and I think this is this is where this will decide what this review will mean and what it will lead to. Um, so a lot depends on what resilience means. You know, does it mean self-sufficiency? Does it mean acceptable risk? What is the level and type of risk that is acceptable? If you have too narrow a definition of resilience or risk, um, it will invariably lead, I think, to suboptimal um, economic outcomes, but also outcomes when it comes to actually trying to improve your own resilience. So, you know, as I mentioned in my talk, the United States um, has a tendency when uh, it looks outward and sees challenges beyond its borders to retreat inward just because it's got such a large, vibrant market and financing uh, platform, you know, domestically within its own economy. Um, we have to ensure that when I talk about resilience, um, it doesn't equate to some kind of supply chain withdrawal. It actually equates to what resilience ought to mean, which is the capacity to deal with different sorts of disruptions and shocks. And it doesn't have to mean self-sufficiency. Thanks. Jeff? Oh, thanks, Gordon. Now, I mean, in a sense, su supply chain integrity and resilience is as old as the hills. As long as businesses have had globalisation, had to deal with cross-border supply chains, they've always needed to manage these issues. Um, but what's interesting and why this is an issue now is the fact that these chains may be affected by political decisions, not the run-of-the-mill problems you might have, which there might be poor weather, prevents shipping coming through, or the Suez Canal gets blocked when a ship turns in it and gets caught by something. And the really telling thing of the Biden's 100-day supply chain review is it picks four products specifically, um, pharmaceuticals, which is fairly obvious given some of the things around coronavirus, semiconductors, critical minerals, and batteries and battery-related products. 
And for those last three, this is actually drawing us at, it's, this is saying, the US saying here is, we have risk everywhere, but here's where the risk is biggest in these four. And those three are all China-related supply chains, where it's that risk of trade coercion that what China did with rare earths to Japan in 2010 may well happen again. Chinese state media threatens this on a weekly basis at the moment, is actually a serious threat. So I think it's worth bearing in mind that the reason we care about this today and because of that reason isn't just that supply chains are important, they've always been, but they're especially important where when you have an era where governments are intervening in the trade of these uh, critical commodities for geopolitical leverage. So let me, let me broaden this a little bit. Uh, you know, Haley in her remarks uh, repeatedly focused on the importance of the private sector. And, and one of the real problems we have when we're thinking about US, Australia, cooperation in the Indo-Pacific is that so much of our international engagement is actually led not by governments, not with some you know, overarching brand like Belt Road Initiative, by individual companies. And in the case of Australia, there are often companies uh, that the US and Australia are competitors in, in the similar space, particularly in the service space, et cetera. Uh, so one of the questions I would have, and, and maybe we'll start with you again, John, then I'll bring this back to you, Haley, on the infrastructure specifically to Jeff, is looking at uh, the Biden administration, uh, he gave a remarkable speech a couple of weeks ago uh, before a joint session of the Congress, uh, the equivalent of, of the State of the Union address. Um, and on the one hand, he said, look, it's important. He said, America is back, but it's essential that we stay back and that we show that we're going to stay back. And we're going to do that together with allies. And so allies like Australia said, yay, that sounds good. But then in another part of his speech, when he's laying out his blue collar blueprint for, for rebuilding the economy, it was very more traditional Democrat, you know, America first, buy America, buy America only kind of thing. And so I'm kind of wondering if there's an overlay or a bit of concern about a decision on the part of policymakers, national security wise, whether it's on infrastructure or supply chains or critical materials or combating economic coercion to cooperate with allies, but on a corporate level or a firm level, they're fundamentally competitors. It seems like, I know, I know that's a big question, but I'm curious as to your take on that, John. Uh well, I, 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 think, I think that is the danger. I mean, every, you know, I, I remembered in, in 2008, uh, before that, about 2018, 2019, I was doing a lot of workshops in America, including with government entities, and they weren't political entities, they were people permanently in government. And, you know, as I've sort of hinted at, a lot of the conversations were about how to strengthen the domestic American market for domestic American companies essentially you know lots of conversations about to what extent um, could companies largely rely on the american domestic market and to what extent could american companies largely rely on this domestic american market to um to 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 make their wealth to to grow their wealth and so those sort of mindsets i i, I think are um there are elements of those mindsets in the Biden administration um that that do work against um, you know, what we're trying to achieve in the Indo-Pacific and a friendly Indo-Pacific and all those sorts of concepts. Look, I, I think the best way of, of trying to um, land in a position that would satisfy, I think, the Biden administration that would satisfy our strategic aims is to say this, that the real competition is about expanding one's economic presence in the region, 
whether that be in the United States or that be in the Asian region. And the real threat in some respects, it's not whether it's an American company or French company, it's whether it's a Chinese state-backed or state-owned company that plays by very different rules. And I think we need to emphasise to the Americans that they need to be in the region and work with other private sector companies from other countries because if they do not have the presence, they lose. Because if they do not have the presence in regional markets, it's, it's, it's um, commercial leaders that largely define standards, that define the rules of the game. It's not really governments necessarily. So if they are not in the region, they can only be that uh, in partnership with other um, private sector companies from, um, you know, from, from democratic countries, essentially. If they're not in the region, uh, they lose. Uh, so, so I think that's probably the message that we need to ram home. But, in, but finally, in terms of the domestic front, um, um, you know, we, there, that threat existed, I know, under the Trump administration, under the Biden administration, it's certainly there in a more sophisticated form. Uh, I, I wouldn't actually say that it's particular to the Biden administration, but I would say that it's certainly being talked about in a much more sophisticated way under this current administration. Thank you. Hayley? Yeah, I mean, you hit on a great point there, Gordon, which is, uh, would Americans be preferring to use US companies to build infrastructure? And certainly, when we have seen the US working in the region on infrastructure, it prefers US companies. Um, and actually, that's one of the one of the things I considered in writing my recommendations was, if you do have Australia and US working together to solve this problem, you don't, you can't just rely on the companies of um, one country because they might not have the skills, they may not, might not be able to have the expertise to be able to deliver on particular infrastructure that's really needed. Uh, so you need to be able to have agility and use infrastructure and, um, sorry, use companies from other countries. So if you have Australia and the United States together, um, the recommendation I had was this um, Indo-Pacific infrastructure program would be separate from government. So it would be funded by government, but it would be run by bankers and people from multilateral development banks so that it can have an outside perspective. Because if you leave it just to the US, they will prioritise American companies naturally. Um, but if we want to have um, greater coverage of the region's infrastructure needs, we need to be more um, open to other companies, including Australian companies that could um, have expertise or particular niche skill sets that they could bring to particular infrastructure projects. So it is really important to be able to um, have a bit of diversity in which um, companies you use and not be siloed to just focusing on you know, national companies. Sorry about that. Jeff, over to you. One thing I would pick up on the infrastructure side is, is this is an interesting inversion of geoeconomics. And we often think about the strategic uses of these things in terms of punishment or the stick side of the thing. Um, and, you know, I talked about China's use of this weapon. But, but this, is the, this is the carrot side of economic coercion as well. And the international relations theorists would call this a positive sanction rather than a negative sanction. Um, it opens up some interesting questions, and I think some of the points that Haley's getting to, he really captured the nub of why this has been a challenge for, for market-based systems like ours. Australia, the United States, do not have 
Exim banks we can just order to build a bridge in Kyrgyzstan, that we do not have state-owned enterprises that whose existence is dependent on subsidised finance from a state-owned bank, who we can say, quid pro quo for you getting negative real interest rates for your corporate banking, you need to go and develop a high-speed railway in Indonesia. Um, so there, there is a little bit of a, a comment, uh, thought in some of the commentary. I'm sure we've all read this about you know, countries step up against the BRI or something like this or Japan and China and races. But I, I think what we're getting to here is how there's a really different qual qualitative political economic system in countries like Australia and the United States. And it means that that's more challenging and it requires a more, uh, a more complex and more creative use of policy levers than simply a fiat comes from um, the White House or Yongnan High. Um, so so where, where Haley's really trying to get with this is that we need to think really carefully about that leveraging that private sector. It is an advantage in that those companies, as you know, as John points out, have great capital depth, have great technical and innovation experience. They're the best, but governments have to herd them like cats sometimes. Um, so it's a <laughs> there's, there's ups and downs of the system that you have. Um, and really what we're trying to get to here is how can we work collectively in trying to solve that problem? Well, speaking of collective work, um, one of the things, <coughs> excuse me, that came out after our, our launch of this report in, in Canberra was a remarkable development in a leaders meeting in the Quad. So the prime ministers of, of Japan, Australia, India, and the president of the United States uh, got together virtually in, in this current era and to the surprise of many, rather than just be kind of anti-China, put forth a very proactive agenda on, on vaccines, on climate change, on technology, <clears throat> and even put out a joint um, op-ed uh, in the Washington Post. It's quite a remarkable thing. Uh, now, that's not bilateral, as most of our conversation, but it does represent some remarkable cooperation between Australia and the U.S. and other key partners in the region. John, can I start back with you again, too? I mean, what, how do you view that statement of the Quad vis-a-vis -vis the issues that you're working on? You're, you're right to point it out, Gordon. I mean, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by the nature of at least the public comments or statements released by the Quad. And, and look, the Quad are obviously, you know, the, the four members of the Quad are obviously the foremost forward-leaning Indo-Pacific powers or the four powers most willing to... Uh, almost committed to directly balancing or countering China. But that meeting and that statement, when I saw it, the first thing I thought of, thought was that the Quad members now recognise that they need to socialise and integrate the Quad with particularly Southeast Asia. Because if you kind of look at all of those four areas that the Quad focused on, they weren't the traditional, you know, naval maritime security stuff. It was the sort of stuff that, um, Southeast Asia would be looking for external or regional bodies to be constructively talking about. So what that tells me is that the Quad has actually stepped it up diplomatically and strategically by understanding that the Quad will only work if it gains that social, diplomatic and ultimately strategic acceptance by Southeast Asia. And I viewed it as um, an, an enormously uh, warming, positive uh, outcome. Very good. Jeff or Haley, anything to add to that? Haley, anything you'd add? I would just say, uh, echoing what um, John has said about it really being able to enshrine the rules and um, the methods of behaviour that we are interested in seeing in our region. Um, and so if we don't step up into this infrastructure space, 
China's Belt and Road Initiative will be one of the only offerings and will be the most attractive offering for a lot of countries. And whichever country builds the infrastructure in developing countries in this region will have incredible influence for literally decades to come. And, you know, how they choose to have that infrastructure built, who they partner with, the types of, um, you know, how, how high quality that infrastructure is will also give that um, a better lifespan. So it will be a more cost-effective offering for those countries in the long term. So I think it's really important that we get this right. And it, I was very pleased to see the Quad talking about quality infrastructure. It shows that the US, Australia and Japan are leveraging the gains they have made in this area by bringing India on board, which is a really important player. India would be, I assume, one of the recipients of a lot of key infrastructure um, as it's a developing in a number of regions. So it was great to see India come on board. And it's also not to the exclusion of other countries. So I think, Gordon, um, you would agree with me, having countries like South Korea also look at this or Indonesia doesn't need to be restricted to Quad. It is a public good that we would be providing by working with the private sector to del deliver this infrastructure. And the sooner that we can uh, seize this opportunity, the better, because the I think the window of opportunity is narrowing. Um, Countries in the region are at a critical juncture in many respects, and uh, whichever country steps up now will have incredible influence going forward. Jeff, anything to add? I think there's an interesting story about the Quad here for the Quad Watchers in what's happened around the recent Leader Summit. And, you know, John's comments has highlighted this. I'll just try and underline it, that the Quad for most of its history was a security, and indeed it starts as a maritime security dialogue out of the those four countries' response to the Indian Ocean tsunami. And for many years it was called the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or QSD. Um, what happened at the Leader Summit in March is the Quad has thrown off the um, view that it's a security arrangement, principally built around defence ministers, maritime engagements, maybe foreign ministers in a two plus two format. And all of the stuff on the agenda at this last one is economic and geoeconomic, vaccines, climate change, infrastructure, critical technologies, cyber, all of the things that we're talking about here. I think that's a really important recognition because it actually recognises that the geostrategic competition in the region today is, is fundamentally, as of today, economic in nature. That would not be to downplay the risk of uh, military flashpoints, Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, all of the other things that we have. But these are things that are over the horizon. Um, we are at trade war today. We are seeing investment races today. So the economic warfare is the battle that's being fought at the moment. And I think it's interesting to see the Quad countries recognising that and saying that this response needs to be more than just about making sure our navies are aligned to deal with an incident at sea from one end of Japan to the Indian Ocean. Just as a, a small amusing coda, uh, it, it would seem that this has not been lost on China either. And there was an interesting incident over the last few days where the Chinese ambassador to Bangladesh, of all places, made a public speech in Bangladesh saying, Bangladesh should not join the Quad. Um, this is quite amusing to us and news to me, I, I, many of my friends who are quad watchers and people on this call, well, we've heard a lot of stories about the next country to join the quad, but Bangladesh has never been raised. Of, co of course, this created the Streisand effect problem where the Bangladeshi foreign minister had to come out and remind the Chinese ambassador that we'll join whatever the hell we want because we're a sovereign country. Um, probably, probably by doing so has pushed Bangladesh more towards that orbit simply by censuring them ahead of the fact. Um, but that you see Chinese diplomats in missions being sent out to talk down the quad 
in the weeks after that it makes this pivot towards the economic uh, suggests that you know this this is something that China is responding to and it's it's mounting that campaign possibly because they they see a problem with the way that this could respond to some of their economic tactics. say not to be pedantic but it's technically impossible for any country to join the quad because if they did it would no longer be the quad but that's not story altogether now look um uh, i want to get a little bit parochial here um it, it, from an outside observer you're looking at the quad and you've got the united states superpower world's largest economy uh you've got china you know I'm not sorry, uh, India is 1.3 billion people. You've got Japan, 100 million people, third largest economy in the world. And then you've got Australia. And we, th we think, all right, yeah, Australia. But in the end, there's, when you start looking at the issues that we've discussed in the quad, vaccines, um, uh, uh, obviously climate change, uh, we spend a lot of time telling us that we have nothing that we can do in climate change, then technology, or what we've discussed today, supply chains, you know, critical materials, infrastructure, combating economic coercion. I wonder if the three of you might just talk a little bit about what Australia has to offer. Uh, and, and again, this is not, we don't need to audition to be in the quad because we're there and we're, we're seen to be a strategic partner by the Japanese and by the Americans, by the Indian, and that alone is sufficient. But help our audience understand, particularly for addressing why does Australia matter in this context? And maybe again, we'll start with you, John. You know, in, in, in security of supply chains, critical materials, you know, the, these advanced technologies, why is Australia the key partner for the US in addressing this in the Indo-Pacific? Actually, that question reminds me of every conversation I've had with um, an Indian colleague for the last 10 years who basically asked us, you know, why the hell should we care about including you guys in, in a group of four? Look, I, I would say the first thing is geography. I mean, geography, obviously, it's, it's geography is important or it's obviously important when it comes to strategic military matters. And Australia's geography speaks for itself. But it's not just, you know, where you might put um, logistical facilities or bases or those sorts of military type things. Think about both civilian and military infrastructure, for example, when it comes to things like undersea cables, you know, which, 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 um, uh, you know, 95% of, of the world's data traffic is not through satellites, it's actually through undersea sea cables. And where is the threat with undersea cables? It's cables that pass through China. Um, so think of where Australia's geography is and, and, and that sort of tells you something about why Australia is important. The, the, the other thing about um, Australia, apart from the geography um, aspect, or another thing is, is that uh, we, if you look around the region, um, the region is filled with a lot of developing countries and, and, you know, developing countries still have significant capabilities and individuals, but it's largely filled with developing countries. In Australia, what we're not that good at is commercialising our talent and our ideas, but we actually have the talent and the ideas and the innovations in all sorts of fields. The, the problem for us is that they don't tend to stay in Australia for a whole host of reasons. They tend to uh, be bought or, or, the, or they are... Um, they are capitalised overseas. But the point I'm making is that Australia is actually one of the few economies in the Indo-Pacific region which could genuinely say is a net innovation exporter, if, if, if you like. Um, so, so I think, and, and you can think of fields like robotics, quantum mechanics, uh, even in fintech, all those things. If you look at the, the impact Australians and Australian companies have played in niche areas, that tells you something. 
Um, I, I, I think finally, you know, once again, I'm looking at from a perspective of why did the Indians finally agree to the Quad? Because it's really about, you know, to what extent is Australia valuable? Um, I, I, I think it, and this is a bit of an intangible thing, but Australia has clearly shown that it is quite a, uh, uh, psychologically at least, it is quite a courageous and plucky country particularly when it comes to dealing with some of the aspects of Chinese behaviour. And even though that's, you can't quantify that, um, as I mentioned, the Quad, it is the four countries who have embarked on an irre irreversible path of countering the worst aspects of Chinese behaviour. So that national will aspect, I, you know, I think Australia has it, not many countries actually in the region have it. Um, I, I do think that's a significant part of our value to especially a country like India, who is now embarked on that same path. Jeff, you've spent some time just this last week re uh, referencing Australia's courageous and plucky nature, uh, in, in particular in response to the most recent uh, steps in kind of the economic attacks on Australia. You want to give us uh, some insights mm. on that as well? Uh, uh, John, John, I think... I would underline John's last point there most strongly. Um, if you were just to have a look at the region and say, well, who do, who do you want in this club? You have the US as the global hegemon, Japan as a regional leader, India large up and coming with its own issues with respect to China. Australia wouldn't necessarily be your fourth choice if you just did a, a paper exercise. Um, but, but where Australia has marked itself out was the ability to be a leader on a lot of these issues, dating back to the years uh, during when the Quad was in abeyance. Um, you know, Australia has taken the lead on issues regarding um, telecommunication networks, what we've seen around 5G and Huawei. These are decisions that have been made by dozens and dozens of other countries around the world. Subsequently, Australia is willing to go first and has, has paid a diplomatic price with respect to China for that. Um, indeed, you could argue that Australia is, is being made a, a sacrificial animal of some sort in, re, in response to that. But I think that issue of, of will and commitment to that is quite significant. On the economic front, Australia also has a unique relationship with China where many of our economic interdependencies are situations of mutual hostage taking. Um, as much as Australia needs iron ore exports to China, China needs iron ore imports from Australia or else its steel industry shuts down its fiscal stimulus in the corona era shuts down, its Belt and Road Initiative shuts down. Um, and this has given Australia some uh, breathing room and leverage during this tra the trade conflict over the last 12 months. Um, there's three products that, uh, a couple of products that China has notably not sanctioned at all, which are the mainstays of the trade, um, iron ore, natural gas and other mineral products. And this reflects the fact that that would impose domestic costs that are quite significant on the Chinese economy if that was the case. We could talk about other countries around the region who might at times feel similar about some of these developments, um, New Zealand or Korea or Indonesia, um, but they don't have iron ore. Um, and uh, across the board, full court press um, trade war with China would have very serious deleterious consequences for them. So surprisingly, Australia does have a little bit more room to move because of the mutual hostage nature it acts as a buffer against acceleration of a trade conflict with China in retribution. Thanks, Haley. Yeah, I would say um, it's interesting, isn't it? This um, whole session is about how Australia and the US can work together to um, push back on Chinese or coercion generally. And the conversation sort of drifts towards the quad. And I think that's um, recognising that 
it's not a bilateral way we're going to respond to these challenges. It's a multilateral way. Um, and just to talk about Australia's value to the Quad or you know, how the Quad dynamics work, I often don't see Australia as the odd one out, but, but India as the odd one out only because um, I see things very, very much through the lens of Australia, US, Japan, and the very strong alliance network that exists there. Um, but I think as we um, head on into this century and see a lot more regional dynamics change, that reliance on bilateral relationships like with the United States will still be important, but will be um, also there alongside the importance of networked relationships. And um, to that end, I think what we've seen with um, COVID and the fact that Australia has put a temporary halt on um, returning Australians from India could have had a very negative impact on um, that relationship, particularly straight after the Quad announcing cooperation on vaccines to only be undermined. And um, our colleague Sonia Arakal um, is very strong on this point that um, what damage have we done to our relationship with India making that move? And um, what sort of message does that send not only to Australians, but to India, um, because the COVID problem is a regional and global problem. It's not going to be solved um, unilaterally. So I think we need to be very careful about um, you know, how we pursue our foreign policy um, in future and have a bit of a bigger picture mindset. And the Quad will be a part of that, but it won't be everything. Let me get a question from one of our, our, our uh, participants. Uh, Jonathan Block, I think many of you know Jonathan. Jonathan is with the ANZ Bank uh, Resources and Energy Infrastructure. And he asks kind of a specific question, which is, uh, takes us to a little bit deeper level. He says, is there likely to be refreshing of the application of the IDFC, which is the International Development Finance Corporation, which was approved under the BUILD Act? So this was a Trump era 2018 act. Um, uh, that was not used to en en enhance trilateral alliance positions across the Indo-Pacific. The question is, is there scope for the US to use this IDFC in conjunction with the Australian government to funding, strengthening cooperation in the alliance, particularly in infrastructure to counterbalance uh, One Belt, One Road? Haley, that's kind of specific for you. Yeah, thank you so much and to Jonathan for his question. Um, the short answer is yes, no, maybe. Um, so what I mean by that is the US Development Finance Corporation has access to a lot of resources to be used for infrastructure. And when the BUILD Act was passed, um, a lot of really important legislative changes were made so that aid could be used more flexibly by the United States, including for infrastructure. Now, um, a couple of years ago in 2019, the United States, Australia, as well as Japan, announced an initiative called the Blue Dot Network. The Blue Dot Network is essentially a certification scheme whereby businesses or even um, individual countries or individual projects could apply for certification and they would get like a blue dot as a stamp of approval. And there was a hint within the Blue Dot that if you were certified, you might have an easier, easier pathway towards accessing some DFC finance. Um, the real problem, though, even though it was announced a couple of years ago, is that um, not only have the benchmarks to achieve Blue Dot certification not been outlined, Australia, the US and Japan haven't actually um, agreed on the scope of what the Blue Dot Network will certify. And yes, partly that's um, the impact of delays from COVID and 
frankly, domestic turmoil in the United States. Um, and then you have a new um, US president as well. But um, it's been delayed for too long. It really does need to be reinvigorated. And I hope that we see the fantastic mechanisms available now in the US DFC used for funding infrastructure in the region. Well, thank you, Haley. We're, we're quickly running out of time, but we got a, a number of questions, both submitted beforehand and online right now, that were much more on security. You know, what prospects for Taiwan, risk of conflict with, with China, South China Seas more broadly. But there's one in particular that I think I'm going to turn to you, John, to, as a final question on. Uh, and that's from Malcolm Cook. And he's, he's a visiting fellow at the National Security College, I think well known to most of us here in Australia from his time both here and in Singapore. But Malcolm wants to know, uh, whether or not you think there's going to be increasing pressure in Australia to do freedom of navigation exercises in, in Chinese claim features in the South China Seas. And I'm going to tie that question into our discussion today. We've, we've had a conversation about Australia-US cooperation in securing in economics, an economic security uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and we've largely stayed away from the kind of the hard military stuff. But when it comes to freedom of navigation, it seems to be that's one area where the two issues kind of overlap. Your, your view of, of where U.S.-Australia cooperation on freedom of navigation, the security element of, of, of maintaining economic security in the region. Yeah, well, my personal view is, yes, there was always U.S desire for us to do phonops, which they define as, uh, you know, going within 12 nautical miles of a contested feature and, 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 and so on. I, I don't actually think that discussion is as important as it used to be because we, we do a lot of flyovers. We just don't do it within 12 nautical miles uh, because that's, in a many ways, that's a sort of slightly arbitrary red line that's in, been imposed on us. So my attitude to it would be, Sure, we're happy to abide by that arbitrary red line or felt relatively arbitrary red line, but we're doing a lot more. Uh, they're not phone ops technically in that they're not within 12 nautical miles. But we're doing a lot more joint patrols in contested areas outside that 12 nautical miles. Um, and, and, we, and much more significantly, we're acquiring a lot more capabilities um, that will allow us to play a far greater strategic and military role in trying to shape the outcomes we want. So I guess I'm not trying to not answer the question. I just don't actually think it's as important to the Americans or to us that we go within 12 nautical miles, given everything else that we're doing. Well, it's a testament to the quality of the panelists that we have that the hour went by so quickly. Uh, there's a lot of questions that we weren't able to get to, uh, but I do think we did a pretty good job of covering uh, not just the chapters that were held in this in, in, the, in this report that were put out by the United States Studies Center and the Perth U.S. Asia Center, but kind of looking forward at some of the, the issues that we're going to be talking about uh, for the rest of this year and obviously years to come in terms of how Australia and the U.S. work together to, in our own you know, joint interest in this, in this very important region, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, on behalf of the United States Studies Center, on behalf of the Perth U.S. Asia Center, uh, thank you, Dr. Wilson. Thank you, Haley. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Appreciate your, 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 your insights today. Uh, I would urge all of you to, if you are not already doing so, to follow both the United States Studies Center and the Perth U.S. Asia Center. There's a remarkable stream of research coming out from both of our research teams uh, that has overlapped more often than you would think, uh, and, and we're delighted to be able to collaborate today. So thank you all. Look forward to the next event. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.